All right. Um, so what are we going to talk about? We can t- we've talked about a lot of things tonight. Yeah. So there is... So we've covered a lot of ground. We have. What's... What's, like, the biggest lesson that you've learned in the past six months? Are you going to answer that, too? I'll try to answer it. Okay. I may have given you my answer already, but... Then if you gave it to me, you have to give me a different one. Wow. Okay, I will give you two. Okay. For your one. (sighs) Okay, give me... Well, I want to listen to you as you tell me yours. Give me a second to think about mine. All right, let me finish chewing on this piece of chicken. Six months. This is, it's August 15th? Let's make it simple. Okay. (laughs) 2018, right? Yeah, yeah. Because that's that's an easy, that's an easy easy milestone. Yeah. Um, So one... One big lesson for me, which I think I've shared with you already, and I realize this doesn't count, but this is our warm-up lesson. This is a warm-up. Um, we brought a lot of new people into Orbital in the springtime. And in that process, I realized that, you know, when you bring people in, you have to introduce them, you have to create opportunities for them to engage with each other. Um, you have to, there's, there's a lot of stuff that you have to do. And so um, I brought back a lot of the old tools, the old rituals and stuff that I've done over the years, but that had been a lot, but that I had been like very lackadaisical about, right? And Mm -hmm. so the thing that stuck out to me in that process was just realization that the consistency by which you engage in rituals is the definition of whether or not you have them at all. Right, like if you don't, if you're very loose about when you do stuff, it's not really considered a ritual. What's a ritual like? Like ask orbital fruit, for instance. Yeah. So ask orbital is this ritual where we aggregate questions from the community, and I pull them in, and then I kind of like categorize them and um, kind of lay them out, almost like a, a newspaper editor might think about how to lay out a paper or an issue, and then. Once they're aggregated, um, I'll then share that back out with the community. And then the community goes to, uh, just goes to town on like looking at the questions that they know about and answering stuff and replying, um, or not. Um, but the benefit of this is that it like helps people surface, um, you know, Things that they thought were minutiae, but turns out it actually turns out to be very valuable to someone who is asking a question. Right. Um, and as it turns out, there's an incredible depth to the knowledge and experiences that the network has. Um, and it's way better than had they actually asked me for help, right? Because I have a very limited scope. Um, but we have not been consistent in how we've run that, right? right? It's been very opportunistic or it's been, it's come about whenever I've, I've had time to do stuff. Um, and so, you know, as a result, then the community does not benefit from that, you know, interaction. You know, so that's one ritual that we've done. Right. Um, when, when, when you're saying ritual, I mean, I know we talk about rituals a lot, but like, I'm immediately thinking about, 
I guess maybe because we were talking about it a little bit before about like religious practice or about, mm. and so, and so I, I wonder, you know, so consistency is important. I wonder why is it important? And the thing that I'm wondering is like, is it important to the people who are participating in that ritual? Do they need, do they need that security of rhythm? Like, is that what's at the core of it being important to be consistent or is it something else? I think in particular for a group like this that, you know, it's like church, right? Weekly cadence. Um, and the full expectation, at least in my stereotypical, in my stereotypical understanding of church, because <laughs> I don't go to church, uh, is that after Sunday's over, you're back to whatever your regular, regular life is. Right. Right. So you, so you move away from that, but then you know when you have this on the, you have this on your calendar and you know what you're gonna do and that's ingrained and it's accepted that the next Sunday that comes along you're you're back in this place with these people and you're engaging in some sort of um, activity. Right. Right. Um, so I think regularity is kind of important, even though you might not actually appreciate it. Do you have do you have rituals that you're not organizing but that you're a participant in that have that kind of cadence? Um, let's see. Well, you know, I teach, right? So um, every year, at least for the past seven years, you know, when December comes around, you know that you've got like thirty days before you need to get your act together and have a syllabus ready, and you're about to engage with students. And so, like, that has been, like, an annual ritual um, that I think has been, you know, relevant. Um, you know, we do show and tell uh, at Orbital on Thursdays. Sure. And I kind of see that as a ritual, as, like, a time and place uh, for some group of people to come together and to engage around something. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, like, I'm prob I probably am using ritual in a very specific way. Right, like it's 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 a um, it's a close cousin to thinking about like habit formation. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's what I'm interested in because it's like I wonder. Take the priest who is organizing mass, <laughs> which neither of us is like <laughs> super intimate with. <laughs> but I don't think the priest is thinking to himself like, "Gosh, I got to do this every Sunday, otherwise, like, I'll lose my audience." He might be. I'm not sure. It would be interesting to wonder. But like, it's like it's like who, who is the regularity for? Who is the consistency for? Because I can imagine the entrepreneurial mindset being it's for the company, right? It's it's for the uh, it's for the organizer. We need this consistency to keep people hooked to make sure that they keep that habit going. Whereas there's another form of consistency, which is it's actually for the recipient. It gives my life stability. It gives my life shape. To know that on Sunday this is where I go, or on Thursdays I go to show and tell at noon. Or... I think there's two parts of it. I think that it is for the participants, right? Um, like for example, when I reach out to people to ask me if they have questions, yeah, it's a good reminder to them that like, oh, it's like another month, month passed, yeah, and I should really be thinking about blah Working blah blah, yeah. right? So so they get that prompt. Um, and I think from my perspective as, say, the community manager, the community leader, um, 
I understand that this is my window for any kind of cohesion. Right. Right. That like, um, if, if I skip out on this, at least now I understand this, if I skip out on this, I'm, I'm actually, um, putting the community at a disadvantage. Um, and so it's, 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 you're pointing out something that's kind of interesting, which is that I think not all the actors in the system are fully aware of the motivations of each other. Um, and I think sometimes things need to happen that way, right? Like people don't always willfully engage in activities that are going to benefit them. Um, you know, they they often go kicking and screaming to do the things that are actually really useful, right? Like, right. You know, you're going to drag your feet if you, even though you need you know that you need to go do a workout, but you set up an appointment with your personal trainer at this point in time, so you have to actually, you have to show up. Yeah, um, I think it's that same kind of um, dynamic. Okay, so this was this is a big lesson for you. What, like, was there a moment or was there a thing that happened that made you like? I, was there a turning point for that lesson? I think it was just a contrast. Yeah. So when we go through this experience of bringing in all these questions, when I see them, I'm surprised all the time because I see something and I'm like, wow, I, I didn't know that that person was carrying this question for them. Mm -hmm. And when you see the type of question that it is, you realize it's not just a flippant question. It's actually, it's a, it's a very well considered thing that you can surmise that they've been with for a while. Right. And there are also some cases within Ask Orbital where we allow people to submit questions anonymously and where I'm the only person that knows the identity of the person. And I, I will say actually, for the most part, most of the questions that have been submitted anonymously in my mind really didn't need to be. Mm -hmm. But when someone chooses to submit it in that form, that's also a signal of, that, that, that they've been carrying it around. Right. Right. And so um, it's a constant reminder to me that even though I walk, even though I'm here every day and I see people all the time or I have ca casual conversations with them, that you really do not know what people are carrying with them. Right. Uh, so that's like emotional response number one. Emotional response number two is just the fact that they actually shared it. Because that in itself is a huge privilege, right? Yeah. Like for someone to gift you with the thing that they've been carrying around is a marker of trust. And so you now have this duty to do with it, to, to, to honor that. Right. Right. And I, and, and like the third step is the thing that I have the most confidence in. Like I have an incredible amount of confidence that when you take this aggregate of questions and you share them back out with the network, that the network will respond. It right. has never failed to do yeah. so, right? In, in a lot of ways, these questions are gifts to the people in the network because they're like, oh my gosh, I can totally contribute to this thing and here's where I can feel like I am actually adding value to yeah. the community. Um, and then they go do that. Yeah. So when you take those three kind of moments of just emotional epiphanies and you experience that, um, it's very striking. And so, you know, we did one in April and it made me realize like, wow. And I think that had been the first one we'd done in, in probably over a year. And when I kind of felt that experience, I was like, wow, I've been neglectful. Yeah. Like I've clearly mm. like, this is clearly a valuable exercise to do. And it is also something that requires me specifically to be the one to initiate it. 
because that's my role in the system. Right. And I am not living up to my duty by not engaging regularly in this activity or ritual. And when you when you have that moment, like is that is that like an emotional moment? When you, like because you just sort of said like uh, not having like lived up to my duty. Yeah. Like it's definitely an emotional moment. Or is it, or is it just like oh I should do this more like because I'm curious because like you know as, no as there's, this, there's definitely this. there's definitely kind of like a I mean I went to Catholic school when I was a kid so maybe that's part of it is like there's a guilt factor involved because when you know that you're the catalyst to make everything work and you're not doing it, then um, you're the one responsible effectively if there aren't interactions that are happening. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, we talk about this a lot, but it's, it's interesting to think about like, well, it's, it's a different mental model, right? Because I think a lot of, I think when we talk about networks and communities, especially in an online realm, the, the default mental model is like, the forum that someone started right. that just exists and creates a space for people to engage with each other, and but that doesn't require right. someone to babysit or doesn't require someone to be the activation energy. That's right. Well, it, it, what was in my mind was like we've talked in the past about like scaling Gary because at various times in your life you've been flexed to or in, beyond your limits. And so, you know, sometimes I know you've had thoughts and I'm, I'm like reflecting on the last however many years, but sometimes you've been like, well, you know, someone else could do this. And I think like you've come to terms to some extent with like, in many cases, someone else can't do it. That in fact, like your presence as Gary is actually very important in certain communities. But then what, what can potentially scale is like your actual, like what's all that's needed is just sort of like a little spark of Gary. And so something like ask orbital, like, you, you, Gary, have to be the person. Like, if it was like, hey, uh, Johnny here, I'm filling in for Gary this month. What questions do you have to ask? Yeah. Or like, that wouldn't work. But there are ways that you can still do your duty as Gary without necessarily sinking. I, I, would, I would respond to this by maybe taking a little bit of the ego out of it, which is speaking product manager to product manager. The utopia for me as a PM is to design like this amazing Rube Goldberg machine that like just magically works by itself. Yeah. And we've seen a couple of examples of that, you know, AdSense kind of works by itself, right? Or sharing on Facebook kind of works by itself because of, you know, that's a whole other ball of wax to go down. Sure. And so I think that that made me predisposed to try to design things that were um, automatically, uh, that were that were automatic, right? right? And, and it made me shy away from systems that actually required some manual engagement. And so I think over the years, I started to develop um, a lot more appreciation for the fact that, hey, it's okay to design systems that requires kind of a person behind the curtain yep. pulling a f- few levers. Yeah. Solution that actually requires any manual intervention, you have failed. Like right. why why are you what business do you have <laughs> employing the use of software, yeah. invoking software in our name, right? Yeah. Like it doesn't make any sense, right? But I think that actually when you think about it, um, there is potential for incredibly engaging experiences and networks of very, very different architectures to exist that can do that can fill so many different gaps. Um, that are designed in this way. Right. 
Um, and so I think like it's taken me a while to really come around to appreciating that. Yeah. Okay. And so I think about this as infrastructure, right? And so I think this is the lesson that I've learned, which is that if you're lackadaisical about when you choose to engage in these rituals, then uh, it's not really a ritual. And so, but then the problem is, well, why doesn't it happen on a regular basis? Why am I forgetting to do stuff? It's because there's a lot of work involved. Yeah. And so then what do you need to do to reduce that amount of work? Right. And that's actually something that software is great for. So I've, I've been spending a lot of my time building tools to actually automate a lot of the drudgery to make it easier for me to run these things without having to do a whole lot of production work. Yeah. Um, and so I think like that, It I think through all of this, I've become very much recommitted to um, this idea of infrastructure and actually building software tools that are um, engaged to address that use case versus so much of software development is grandiose. It's like, how do I can, how do I create the utopia where things magically happen and everything is great. Right. And if you don't hit that bar, you fail. And it's just, it's, it seems like a really stupid kind of bar to try to set for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think something that I'm really excited about as you explore the tooling stuff is, tooling that not only saves you time or, or makes it easier for you to do things like an AMA or a ask the community moment, but also itself sets the drumbeat for doing those things without requiring you to internalize what a good drumbeat is. Because I think you've, through trial and error, have sort of found, oh, you know, I should probably do this ask the community thing every month. But imagine, imagine someone who has access to these tools they might not have the the mental layout of like, oh, okay, we do mass every week, Tuesday yeah. we should do this. That, that itself is something that is learned. And I think it's interesting to think about how the tools might themselves create the drum beat. So it's it's not it's not a manual of how to do it, but just simply by using the tools, this this cadence evolves. How do you wake up in the morning? Um, you know, I ran a Twitter survey recently. Did you? How many alarms do you set a day? <laughs> and it was uh, zero. Uh-huh. There were three options. Zero, one to two, more than two. Okay. So for me, it's one to two. Right. You set the you set the aspirational time that you want to wake up. That's right. And then there's like the really, okay, Nick, you really got to wake yeah, up right yeah, now. Yeah, it's like no joke. And so I think the software fits that use case, which is that, we know what things we want to be able to do and it's good to have these agents to kind of help remind us or help guide us. Um, but the software is not going to do the work for us necessarily. But like, so like the, these tools I'm building around S orbital are yeah. very much, they're just a more sophisticated alarm clock. Yeah. But I mean, so, so let's get, let's get nitty gritty for a second. And then I want to go back to the lessons cause that was the, beautiful scaffold that you made up for this <laughs> conversation. Uh, imagine tiny letter plus. So tiny letter Oh, is, man. Do you really want to go here? <laughs> I, just, oh, just, this is a whole podcast wait, episode we can, right here. We can cut this out later. Uh, so, so, but let, let me, let me give you my narrow question. Yeah. We're not, we're not going to design, we, we can design <laughs> tiny letter plus right now, but we don't have to. Okay. 
that could be a whole podcast series. Yeah. Invite people on <laughs> to redesign Tiny Letter. <laughs> that would be amazing. Okay. Um, so Tiny Letter is a uh, like essentially just like a mailing service. It's now owned by, or I guess it was was it acquired or did it was acquired? Okay, it was acquired by uh, SurveyMonkey. Mailchimp. Mailchimp. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's the wrong. We should we should caveat that we're like four drinks in. Yeah, I've been drinking, so I'm getting my survey monkey, and my mailchimp confused. They're, they're they're the same. There's a monkey involved. Yeah, and... I think it's like a forgivable. Yes. Uh, okay. Anyway, you you can uh, acquire subscribers and email them with tiny letter. Yes. And what I, what I and, like, and it's well designed, well designed. for um, people that are just getting started. Very simple. Yeah. And my favorite feature is that people can reply to your newsletter right. and it just goes to you. Yeah. Right. It's kind of like a better Google groups in a way. Yeah. Um, so I had, I had an aspiration on my tiny letter, which was, I was going to send out a hundred emails ever. Mm-hmm. This tiny letter was going to self-destruct after a hundred emails. Okay. And I thought that was like a fun constraint. Okay. And I probably send out like 17 emails in the course of like three years. And I was like, this is a, like, I'll never reach that constraint. Right. So the constraint aside, like I would have benefited from some sort of drumbeat. You know, I would have benefited from tiny letter being like, yo. Time, time to write. Time to write. Time, now, or time to start thinking about yeah, what you want to write about. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, so, so let's PM this for a second. So PM feature A is like, yo, it's time to write. But being a PM, we can probably imagine what's going to happen. That's just going to create a sense of guilt in the writer, and they're going to punt it. You'll ignore it. I'll ignore it. My guilt will accumulate uh, on the second notification, mm-hmm. and then eventually I'll stop using t- I'll probably send an apology to all my subscribers, and I'll shut it down. It's like, guys, I just can't deal with this. <laughs> so, so what we need to do is we need to not only just notify someone that's time to write, but we might want to pre-populate it with everything that's been going on. Hey... You've tweeted, Gary, these things 10 times, and your network has tweeted these things five times. Here's sort of a, a starter kit or a template of the kind of email you might want to write. Totally. Do you think that would start to scratch an inch, or do you think that itself is now, or have we like built something that's too overwrought? Um, I think when you set up a tiny letter, it's almost like you should be required to express an, an intent. Right. And within that intent, maybe there's some automated prompts that fit the, the primary use cases that most people will want to write about, right? So the one you bring up could be like, um, uh, I want to write about current events, yeah. right? And so maybe it connects with your Twitter and it observes kind of the news that's coming to you and it suggests to you, hey, Nick, you engaged around these, con- you, you engaged around these links Maybe you have a, a longer piece that you want to write about, yeah. blah, right? Yeah. And so, like, it could be an intelligent agent that actually helps you with that question of what should I write about. Um, and then it could also say, hey, it's a week before you should really ship. Why don't you write a first draft? Right. You know, and here's, uh, here's five people who have agreed to look at a draft. Yeah. You know, and, and it just kind of takes you through that flow. Yeah. It could work that way. And, and, I mean, I think intent is so important and is so rarely executed. Like, it, it's so sort of obviously true, and yet, like, it's almost impossible to point to software that does this. I think one of the reasons that it, you don't see it is because it's really hard. Because, like, what you just described, 
involves an entire set of features. Yeah. It's very specific to that use case. And like, now let me give you my, my actual intent for my tiny letter. Yeah. You know, this was very diary oriented. This was like me pouring my heart out. It was a secret tiny letter. Mm-hmm. It had like 25 or 35 subscribers, all of whom I knew. I was rejecting subscribers when I felt I couldn't trust this person. It was a safe space tiny letter. And basically, essentially, some of my diary entries got like promoted and expanded into tiny letters. Okay. So like that, I would have needed some diary to, I would have needed like a day one to tiny letter yeah. flow. Yeah. Um, and then if tiny letter smart, now it's, it's somehow hooking up with day one, which to, you know, like, Hey, you haven't written anything in your diary in two weeks. How the hell are you going to send this tiny letter out? Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I think that like, it's, 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 it seems kind of counterintuitive that a product that facilitates the way, uh, uh the publishing of content would challenge you on why you want to use it in the first place. Right. But in that same token, it actually might um, create a lot of value. I think specifically around the topic of writing. Right. Right. Because it's not a SaaS product, right? Like, it's not that you need to install this thing so that you can perform a function in order to deliver some numbers to the people that you report to to justify the salary that you are receiving for the job that you're performing. Yeah. Right. Writing is a very different mechanism altogether. And so this question of why you want to use the product is kind of important. And then if you, if you like, I guess, I guess the way I would frame it is if everyone provided that information to tiny letter, then they would have, they would be in such a better position to actually drive engagement. Yes. Right. If they had that one piece, why are you, why are you using this? Right. Right. That would be so valuable. Okay, let's let's table our uh, tiny letter redesign. Tiny letter redesign. Um, I mean, to to wrap up my part, yes. it's it's that like I think what I learned was um, this is just part one of your part though. You have a two part part. Yes, because uh, but just because of the constraints of the game, we none of this required. <laughs> I need to provide an actual uh, idea. Uh, oops. Um, You need to be intentional about the infrastructure that you and or your community needs, and uh, and then you have to deliver it. And uh, you can't cut corners on that. Um, and it's kind of similar to just this notion of like, look, you got to feed yourself two to three times a day. And if you cut corners on that, there's going to be there they're going to be there's a result that will happen. Yeah. Uh, and so I think the health of a system follows that same math. Um, and if you don't do it, you're negligent. Yeah. So, so that's kind of how I look at it. Like I've been, in, I've, I've been somewhat negligent, um, over the years when I've been self-absorbed with the things that I've been working on. And, and so like, that's what we've gotten as a result. Yeah. Um, but then I think that's the reason for, um, the motivation to be reinvested in tools, which is to acknowledge the fact that I'm going to always have stuff. Right. And so, like, I need to make it as easy as possible for me to facilitate this ritual. Right. So that's my number one. Okay. I'll give you my number one, and then my it's my one of one. Uh, but it, it's, I don't think it, it's like a, it's a pre-lesson. It's not like a, it's not a fully baked lesson. Okay, okay, okay. Proto-lesson. It's a, it's a... 
It's a proto lesson. Yeah, let's see what it is. Pre lesson suggests that there's something that's going to come immediately. No, there's after. nothing going to come after. Yeah, so then okay. like it makes me feel like I'm missing out on what the actual there's lesson none. is. Okay. Okay. Proto yeah. lesson. Let's, let's set expectations. All right. Um, I'm only starting to believe in and appreciate, and then invest in what you could almost call like. Uh, the third space, and by third space, I don't mean like a, a classic third space, which is your your family, your your work, and then like the third space, uh-huh. passions and interests, or stuff like that. I mean, like uh, when two people are very engaged, there's something between them that is like real, and I don't know how to talk about it, but it's there's there's like. Uh, you could think of it as a space or you could think of it as almost like a third person, but it's like, we have a shared space and in that shared space, like very special things can happen. Mm -hmm. Um, and they can't be attributed to one person or the other. I suppose that's, that's almost like the definition of the third, right? Is like the work that two people can do together or the, the, the stuff that can be achieved can no longer be pinned. Like you can't say like, Oh, that was, that was Nick's contribution or that was Gary's contribution. Um, and like people have these encounters all the time in like mm-hmm. improv, in it's kind of like being in the zone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. So, so yeah, the being in the zone is a perfect example. So you know, there's this guy, uh, Mihail Csikszentmihalyi. This is like long ass name. Okay, he's the flow guy. So if you Google like flow TED talk, uh-huh. you'll have this. But he talks about achieving states of flow, and flow is exactly that in the zone. If you're like a you know, a piano virtuoso. Like, how did you do that? And, you know, they won't be able to explain it. They're not, they're not like intellectually employing their craft. They're, they're achieving a state of flow, but it's like multiplayer flow. And I don't think multiplayer, multiplayer flow has been like sufficiently explored. Hmm. What are the conditions for it? And what does it look like when it's happening? But I think one of the things that I appreciate about when multiplayer flow is happening is ideas aren't coming from one person or the other. They're literally coming from like a, like if we had a whiteboard in this room, like we do have whiteboard in this room. <laughs> uh, like it's almost like we're constantly uploading things to the whiteboard and like the whiteboard is like giving them to us. It's like, it's this shared space. But the whiteboard, like if we were having a brainstorm session, the whiteboard would really be a third entity. Space. Uh-huh. It wouldn't. It wouldn't be this neutral, like object it wouldn't merely be technology it's not like a marker right it's actually like a container for information and a distributor for information in the same way that you and i are also containers and distributors of information right um well this this sounds like a very heady lesson let me like bring it to like <laughs> um uh, i think like therapy has been that for me uh-huh or my because it's creative space it's I, I was shocked at how like creative my therapy stuff was and it took a lot for me and my therapist to get to that mm-hmm. like space. But, but then when some of them are like, oh, this is super interesting. And uh, I've also had that at work with my collaborators. Yeah. Um, and, and it's also shifted my attention from, I still suffer from this a lot, but it's like, I'm always thinking like, how much did I contribute? Huh. And I, I get, I get like worried about like, am I, Pulling your weight. Am I pulling my weight 
you know, it, like like a lot of people with like ego stuff. It's like or it's, it's like, did I really contribute to this thing? Right. What when you definitely did? Yeah. But where it's very hard to actually empirically look at the final result and point out that's right. The you know it's kind of like the. Um, you know, classic interview challenge with product managers and designers mm-hmm. is to get them to talk about not just the work they were part of, but what their role was in it. Yeah. And then to get them to to kind of almost like claim it. Yep. Which I understand yeah. is a necessary thing because it's theoretically possible that someone just floated. Yeah. But it doesn't really allow for what you're talking about, right? It doesn't allow for someone to say, hey, I was like the glue person. Right. And uh, have that be valued. Yeah, but... Whereas that could be the thing that actually enabled this to actually even exist. Right, right. And maybe maybe I'm just like allergic to that phrase, like I'm the glue. But but for some reason, like, I'm glad you're bringing it to PM stuff because it's very, like, pertinent. There's, There's the take all the credit... (laughs) stereotype which was like actually popular it's totally true it was was actually popular 10 years ago like those are the worst fucking PMs I'm the CEO of product I'm I'm the GM of the blah I'm the GM of the blah right yeah you know I really had a vision and had a great team and they worked for me did you see what well I'm not gonna bring that (laughs) do you know what I'm talking about what I just said um, there, there is, I, I don't know the specific example that you're talking about there's a recent generally there's a recent president and a recent celebrity and he memorialized this recent celeb- recently passed celebrity by saying she worked for me on multiple occasions. Like she was great. Oh, I'm not. We'll, we'll just leave it there. Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, so so you've got you've got the asshole. Yeah. And then you've got sort of the humble. I'm just the glue. Overly humble. Overly humble. I don't have ideas. I just pull ideas from the organization. Yeah. And like I, I think, I, by the way, I think there are both of those PMs, and I've seen, especially the glue PMs succeed. Every once in a while, you'll see like the tyrant PM succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, for for me personally, forgetting like because PMs are like a diverse set of people, right? Like, and will always be, but depends on the, the product that you want to build. Yeah. But for me, like, uh, what I'm talking about is less about the glue, but it's more like. Man, like, what I want to be able to say about work is I created an incredibly, like, fertile, rich, collaborative, creative space. Mm -hmm. And many people played in that space, myself included, and look at the cool thing we made. And so, like, the conditions for creating that space are, like, a newfound interest of mine. Um, both, I, both that I can participate in for myself and then so that I can organize for like my teammates. I think it's one of the best reasons to like get out in the world and talk to people that are not your coworkers. Yeah. Because you never know kind of what that turns out into until you engage, right? Like, like there's no possible way you could predict what those spaces would look like. Right. Like it's not like you're, you know, it's, it's like going to the ice cream store. Like you go to the ice cream store you ask them to taste some things because certain things look good, but you don't really know what they taste like until they give you a sample. Yeah. And then you choose which one you want to go all in on, right? Like, and I think that, um, I think the same goes with what you're talking about, which is um, who knows what the possibilities are when you get a certain type of person in the room 
with you and what that creates or yeah. what kind of conversation that, excuse me, um, creates or what that leads to. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's like, it's very tangible and, it, and it's exciting. Yeah. I mean, orbital is exactly designed for this, right? Like the, the idea of having a space where you bring a broad set of people in, it means that I have access to so many different types of conversations. Um, you know, like we, we had a, we had a conversation, you know, a couple of days ago with a team of people that are working on a podcast. Right. Right. And that allows us to go down a line of inquiry to explore a space together um, that may be otherwise hard to engage with if, it, if this wasn't the proper place to have that conversation. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I know. I mean, I think... And so, like, you, you know, like, having a, having a process by which you ration some percentage of your time to, to be anything... Um, it's almost like if you offered, I bet you, if you offered, um, Nick office hours, two hours a month, and you actually had a process by which you were pushing that out in the world Mm -hmm. and inviting people to sign up for a variety of reasons, it would, it would enable you to have conversations that, um, could be, um, you know, some of those conversations would be valuable immediately, and, and some of those conversations, I think, would probably make sense over time, and then a smaller set of those would probably not be useful altogether. But, yeah. but I think, like, it'd be a way to kind of um, experiment and iterate and engage on kind of creating spaces. Yeah, no, I, I'd like to do that. I, I, I've i done a couple of office hour things in the past, and I'm always, I guess, surprised it sounds arrogant, but, like, uh, sign up is never what... I think it would be. So I, I think I need to like think about how to make it more lower the bar. Cause I think it's a weird thing for a lot of people, especially strangers to sort of be like, yeah. Okay. And you know, that Google calendar flow is, it's kind of heinous. Yeah. yeah. And so like between that and, and that idea, yeah, you're talking, you're, you're talking about an interaction. And yeah. so like that needs to be designed right. and you need to iterate on that based on what you get. But so I, I agree with everything you're saying. I, I like, I like these ideas, but I want to make sure that like, this is like this is like mouth of the funnel stuff. Like, have you had an experience recently that's been like dizzyingly creative with someone else, where it's like you're bouncing pe- ideas off? Like, not to romanticize it, but like I'm imagining Saturday Night Live or like the writers' room or mm-hmm. you know that kind of environment. Have you had one recently? And, and if you have, like, I'm curious, like, what were the conditions where that made it happen? I mean, honestly, I think that's part of been the value of teaching mm. because. Um, each, you know, for, for the types of stuff that I'm involved in teaching, um, we're working with people on ideas that they have. Right. And so every single interaction with them is an opportunity to go on like a roller coaster ride into the world that they are a part of or the world that they are imagining. And, um, Increasingly, as I get older, they're they're working on things that I don't really fully understand in the same way, right? Um, And so, like, uh, teaching as a vessel for these types of things has been great. Working in venture, right? When I worked in venture, it was the same thing. People are coming to you because you have money, 
and they're sharing with you their lessons, their story, their viewpoint, and that is an incredible privilege. Yeah. Um, it, it's very kind of intoxicating, and I think that I think for that reason, that's part of the reason why, like, going to um, work at a specific company has been a daunting kind mm-hmm. of like idea. Yeah. It's like when you, when you've been able to be in a position where you have access to so many different narratives. Right. The thing the thing that you crave then is to continue to be in a position where you have access to so many narratives. Yeah. I you're making me remember the product sessions and so uh One thing I've, one thing as I've like really earnestly tried to explore like this space and like understand what are the criteria, what are the conditions in which like this kind of interaction can happen. Um, one of it is like you really have to understand the other person's like psychic space, like their mental space. Um, and once you understand it, you might have insights that they don't otherwise have because like they're they're in it. I mean, they're like literally inside of it, yeah. their experience, and you. You get it, but you're not in it, right? And you're just making me remember the product sessions because, I mean, even though, product, like, I'm thinking about a little bit about therapy, but now product sessions are about PMs helping PMs. But I mean, we've always, like, you know, there's, it kind of there's comes, always, it all kind of comes there's back always down to a, therapy. There's always a dose of therapy, but, but, you know, we were always surprised, at least I was always surprised, and a lot of other PMs were too, who did it, like, with, like, you know, you'd, you'd come in with relatively little context, you'd be able to actually give people help. Yeah. And I think there's a temptation to say, like, well, that means that they're not really thinking about it. You know, especially from a PM's perspective. Right? PM's, totally. PMs need to be thinking about every yeah. know, corner. So you're like, you know, they got blind spots. Like, right. They're not. Boy, who yeah. hired that person? <laughs> right. Yeah, how'd that person get in right. that role? Right. But, you know, like, through the lens of these psychic spaces, in part, it's like, we all have these incredible blind spots and it's actually like a really important skill to be able to invite someone into your space to be like, put on my sunglasses real quick so you can see what I'm seeing. But by the way, you also have the ability to take them off so you can tell me what I'm missing. And, and you know, you, you structured this whether knowingly or not with the product sessions, which, you know, was the most important part of the product sessions was this is not a pitch, right? This isn't, give me your sales and I'll poke holes in it. This is like all experiential, like it's dialogue, dialogue and tell me what you're going through and, t- yeah. and and all of that served to immediately inject me into like the space, into the experience of the people I was talking to. Yeah. And it was, it was their, it was their capacity to bring me in that allowed me to actually give them any kind of helpful advice. Right. And, and some people may not be as adept at that. Exactly. And then it's hard to get into a conversation with that would actually be valuable. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's continued to take me like a while to appreciate that. But you know, the skill of being able to explain what you're going through to, to, to share your experience viscerally, that's like an important skill to have. And if you have that skill, you can, you can invite people into like a very intimate place where they can actually like, uh, I think help. I think that's something that people need a regular practice of, right? Like I think I, th- I think that's part of why we advocate for working in public, yeah, for sharing things that are in progress, um, which is to just by default realize that you're not going to um, figure it all out by yourself, right? Right. And so, how do you create a practice? And it's really scary to do so. It's, I think it's gotten actually a lot scarier to share things. 
in 2018 than it was, you know, six years, six years ago. Yeah. But, um, you know, and it gets back to the first point, right? This idea of, um, you know, my lesson around regular infrastructure, you know, I think the challenge I would make is how do you, um, how do you kind of institutionalize this? How do you create um, a regular way by which you yeah. are constantly engaging with other people and potentially creating other spaces yeah. as a result? Yeah. Okay. Okay, so... Two of two. I need a prompt. Like, like I'll, look, I'll, I'll lay it out for you. I've, I've, I've kind of been in a reflective mode lately, and I think I've acknowledged I've learned a lot of stuff across, you know, a range of things. I think on the spot, it's hard for me to try to, like, pick one. Mm -hmm. But, like, uh, give me something. Like, what are some of the things you th that you're curious about? And then I'll hopefully, maybe one of those might um, sure. signal for me something that's like, oh, yeah, I should really type into X. I mean, I, I think between the mood I'm in now and also the way I think of you, I'm always interested. You you always seem like uh, a little bit more aware than I am. Like you seem like like you're not you're not full on enlightened. <laughs> you know, you're not yeah. like you're not like the Buddha where I'm like, cool man, like glad you got there. See ya, see ya. Uh, but you also seem to be. Uh, on a path that I would really, that I, that I pursue myself. Hmm. And so have you, I'm curious if you had any experiences on that path of awareness or peace or happiness or, or oh, anything. I, I've got a clear one for you. This is kind of a, um, uh, I think this is something you've probably heard or seen people tweet about or talk about or whatever. Um, but I am increasingly, uh, I think, convinced of how little I know. Mm. Um, and when I look back at some of the things that I've been working on, you know, or some of the activities that I've done, it's like, my God, the arrogance to say <laughs> that you can work with people across a certain range of stuff. It's like, who, yeah. what do you, you know, so now when I think about like um, where I can engage, where I can be useful, I am a lot more conservative. However, I, what I will say is that I think I also recognize that um, if you kind of up-level from that impulse um, that that's kind of a mark of knowledge in a sense. Right. And I think that the takeaway for me is that I'm starting to appreciate a little bit more um, the complexity of the world and the nuances around things to understand that, um, you know, where you can or can't be impactful in a sense. Um, so, like, it's this, it's this kind of duality of realizing kind of the world is small but then also at the same time realizing kind of the universality of that mm -hmm. um you know and i think it, it probably concludes or ends in this idea that like we don't really know no one really knows what they're doing yeah um and 
how do you help people get comfortable and situated uh, with the fact, or actually even centered in this idea that they are confronting the unknown um, versus the mentality that the answer is there and they haven't figured it out yet and right. they're just really right. slow to do the special math required to figure out the answer, what, which I think is very, very misleading. Was there a moment in 2018 where you, you felt like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm out of my depth and I can't believe I ever had the areas to think that I could? Um, you know, I think that's actually probably been one of the barriers for me in terms of launching more revenue-generating programs is that like who am I to do X? Right? And and I realize there's it's somewhat absurd in a sense because it's like, oh well in some in some examples of programs and activities, like I have a lot of experience in that. Um, but you know I think that the you know when you reconcile the fact that we're more connected than ever, um, the ability for people to access kind of what we would identify as expertise is actually yeah. a lot easier than it was before. So if your goal is to provide some sort of convening around expertise, um, you know, it's like, it's very easy to find examples of people that know more than you do. Right. And so then you, you, you ask yourself, what business do I have doing X? You know, how is this better than just surfing Twitter for a while? Yeah. Um, and you know, it leads to a lot of like, I think questions of like, you know, what, what do people really need to know? Right. Yeah. I wonder how you, I wonder how you distinguish this from like imposter syndrome, which is like a very popular meme. And I'll just share like my own experience with imposter syndrome, which is like, I don't think I ever felt it. Like <laughs> I never, I never viscerally felt imposter syndrome at the same time I'm exposed to like a huge sea of people um, with more expertise on any given area uh, and I'm also exposed to ideas that uh, might be like the right idea and all I need to do is find it um, but I've never I never felt the way I the way I take imposter syndrome is like I don't have any business being here. I'm an imposter in mm -hmm. a field of experts. Um, I guess I never felt that because um, I think for two reasons. One is I believe in my ability to grow. And so even as I enter fields that I don't know that much about, I'm kind of like, I don't know that much yet, but I think I could. I, I kind of believe in, I believe in my pr projected Velocity, and then the other thing about not having imposter syndrome is I, I kind of also believe that like we're all imposters that like I'm not super relative in my thinking so I oftentimes find myself thinking I don't know anything but that that anything is like cosmic it's like <laughs> there's like a lot of unknown there and so I, I I oftentimes find myself mapping to that mm -hmm. rather than like look at this expert over here. Like I like I, yeah. I I generally have humility about the field that we're in rather than yeah. So like I think I think the way that I've evolved probably has been to not be solution oriented, but to maybe be a little bit more context oriented. Mm -hmm. So when people come to me for help about certain things, I think one thing I will try to do is establish the context that I know about and the context that I don't know about. Yeah. 
And in doing so, it's also about trying to help them understand that they're fundamentally doing something new and no one has any context on what they're trying to do. Right. Um, and then you share what you know, but then the lessons that you share that you know you're not presenting as universal truths. You're, you're, you're presenting them as, in this one context, at this, at this particular point in time, this is what works and why. And it seems like maybe there's a connection between that story right. and the story that you're trying to resolve. Right. Um, and so I think I've gotten better at contextualizing. But I think overall that has made me a lot less, um, I think it's made me a lot more conservative about where I can be useful and where I'm completely yeah. useless. Yeah. Well, it goes back to that, that like seeming dichotomy that you're describing, right? Which is like, on the one hand, you're being a lot more conservative. On the other hand, you're, you're signaling or you're explicitly communicating that it's like, by the way, I know what context is, Yeah. you know, and like, like I'm. I'm, I have the tools available to contextualize my knowledge, which is like a, a big step for knowledge, right? Like being able to contextualize your knowledge. Right, versus believing that there is... Yeah, you know, I had one of those and that's what we did, <laughs> so you should probably do that, you yeah. know. Uh, so, so even as you become more conservative, the thing that you communicate becomes more powerful because it's like, well, the, the person who, who believes this understands it also allows you to absolve yourself of any responsibility <laughs> right yeah right because you're like hey i just told you the story but that works in this one context so i'm not suggesting it works for you yeah um which but... is super important by the way I, I i have a mentee and he and i were doing like a six month retro uh-huh oh that's great it was it was really great and and uh he's great and one of his critiques and i, I hope i'm not like miss saying it but it was kind of like you know, like sometimes your ideas are like pretty good. Sometimes like they're not that good. Your ideas. Yeah. Like, like, <laughs> and it was a really good opportunity for me to, I had never made it explicit, but I was like, uh, I'm, I'm an idea machine. Like I, I'm going to be like, you should do this. You should do that. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> I may or may not contextualize those opinions. <laughs> But my expectation is, or not my expectation, my, my hope is that I'm like a huge fire hose input into your like decision-making processes. And it's just like working out at the gym. And I'm like, I'm here to just like help you do reps. And these are like very low stake reps. And so my only hope is that you take my ideas and either explicitly reject them, explicitly accept them, explicitly refine them, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but I could go over 100 and I'd still think of it as a success if your intuitions and your decision-making processes are strengthened by that. Right, because so, you're, you're helping paint a picture for people. That's right. That might not see certain types of options and opportunities. Yeah. And they may not be practical, but they're important intellectually to be able to see those things because then they can eventually... Uh, you're, you're helping them stretch their um, concept of what's possible. Yeah, and they transfer, right? Yeah. So, I'm, so I'm, I, I can disappear and then this person can carry. I'm a big fan of that, right? Like yeah. a lot of times I will suggest very ludicrous ideas to people. And I think some people are like, why is this guy suggesting something that is clearly so untenable? Yeah. And But the purpose of it is actually to get them to start to think more broadly about what is actually possible, Right. right? That it's not about you know, concentrating on this one point that you think that 
if you resolve that, everything works out. It's, it, it might actually be that you need to reframe what you're doing. Yeah. Um, but in order to get you to understand that, you need to be pitched on a seemingly ludicrous idea. Yes. Um, and so those are definitely the times when I'm very happy to be speculative about stuff. Yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, increasingly, I think, I think I've gotten a lot more conservative in terms of um, what I suggest to people or ha- putting myself in a position. Um, you know, I, I think like the other part of it also is that I have, um, I have learned to appreciate facilitation. Mm-hmm more and more as a valuable practice. So like I went, you know, recently I met with a, uh, a group of founders from a particular program and my job there was not to provide a bunch of answers, but actually to just get them to open up. Right. You know, and I think that like, um, you know, if you're fundamentally working on something that is new, um, almost by definition, no one's ever done it before. No one's ever done it before in this way at this time. And so, um, you know, the impulse that I'm working against, I think the thing that I am trying to minimize is this idea that there's a right answer. Right. Right. There's a right answer to that, like, oh my gosh, you're an idiot because you didn't see what the right answer was. Yeah. And it's like, no, that's totally not the case. Like, you're you're sailing in the ocean. Yeah. Right? There's no... There's no, there's no one true path, but you got to make it through the night. Yep. You know, and that's the, that's the goal. And at the risk of like, uh, trying to overly bring it full circle. But you know, when you talk about rituals, like a lot of facilitation is rituals, right? Is the creation of rituals, which again, I, I know that you're not necessarily using it in this way, but part of participating in a ritual is to sort of like put a lot of your, preconceived notions and habits and ideas aside and to participate completely in this thing. Look, I think that's totally it because if you didn't play that, then theoretically this stuff should just happen. Right. But that's it right. does. Yeah. 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 Right. It does. That's such Look, a good point. Right. We were, t- we were talking this about this over dinner, you know, we get, you know, like with the last ask orbital had 30 questions yeah, we have a, we have an advice channel on Slack. Yeah, you know these questions could have been posed there, right? Right, um, but there's a reason why they're not, and so the ritual serves to go and pull those out. Yeah, right, and then everyone's better off for it. Yeah, uh, and but then no one needs to admit it. Right, right. No one needs to admit it. No one needs to adjust their behavior. Right. No one is wrong, but you need the ritual to continue to kind of create that space. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Good podcast.